Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. For this recording, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Kasha Prophoki, an associate professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Prophoki earned a PhD in development sociology from Cornell University in 2017. At LSE, she co-organizes the Social Life of Climate Change Initiative, and she is a research associate at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Her research draws on and contributes to the study of political ecology of development and agrarian change, with a focus on South Asia and specifically Bangladesh, where she has worked and conducted research for over 15 years. It was this research that underpinned the publication of her first book in 2021, entitled Threatening Dystopias, The Global Politics of Climate Change Adaptation in Bangladesh, which is published with Cornell University Press. And it is this book that we are discussing in this podcast. Professor Paprocki, thank you very much for joining us and for agreeing to this podcast. Thank so, you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to uh, be in conversation with you about this and to be on this really, really excellent podcast. Wonderful. Thanks. So Threatening Dystopias is really a highly interdisciplinary work, um, drawing especially on anthropology and history. It also successfully weaves globalist and local narratives to challenge common understandings of the global climate crisis and its effects on a specific locale, that is, southwest Bangladesh. I just want to know from the at the outset, how did you come to write this important book? What training and experiences did you draw on? Uh, what did you set out to achieve when you began researching and writing? And how did the broader project evolve over time? Yeah, thanks. Such a good question. So, you know, as, as you said, I've been working in Bangladesh for a little over 15 years. And in my early work in, in the country, I uh, met and came to know this landless peasant movement uh, called Nijarakori, which means we do it ourselves in Bengali. And um, Nijarakori is Bangladesh's largest landless peasant movement. And I was just really inspired by their approach. I had been doing some research on microcredit and was really just fascinated by their um, opposition to microcredit and their sort of um, political alternative vision of what development in Bangladesh should look like. And so when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I asked them what I should be doing research on next and what might be useful to them. And they asked me to go to uh, Bangladesh's southern coastal district, uh, which borders the Bay of Bengal, um, the southwestern district called Kulna, um, where they have been working in opposition to commercial shrimp aquaculture since the 1980s. And they had been really opposed to, to aquaculture, and they thought um, this is something that we could use some research on, um, formal academic research that sort of examines the problems with commercial aquaculture, which has been really devastating sort of socially and ecologically. And so I went down there to look at it. And in that sense, the project began as basically a, an agrarian political economy of shrimp aquaculture. And I did some participant sort of collaborative research with movement members there, along with a colleague, Jason Kahns, who's an anthropologist at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. And I came to have a, a real appreciation of the really deep problems with 
shrimp aquaculture through this research that I did with them. And as I thought about what was going to come next after this participatory study that we had done with movement members, I was like, why are development agencies still supporting and putting so much uh, money and sort of effort into expanding shrimp aquaculture when these really devastating impacts have been so clear for so long. And so I started going and um, interviewing people who worked for development agencies that were promoting shrimp and asking them, why are you still doing this when, you know, many, many people have heard about these, these problems that shrimp has caused in this region. And the thing I kept hearing was, well, um, yes, we know there have been problems with shrimp, but because of climate change, shrimp is the only possibility for this region in the future. Um, the region's going underwater, the land is becoming um, waterlogged and salinated, and that means that agriculture is not viable and that shrimp is the only possibility. So yeah, so this the, the book and the, the project that sort of produced the book started from this question, like, is it true that uh, shrimp aquaculture is the only viable option for uh, this region and why and how and what are the ecological impacts that are being experienced? How are those ecological impacts understood differently by these different actors in the region? And what kinds of sort of future visions are these social movements and the people who live in this in this community imagining for their future? Um, and how, how are those different from the way that these development actors and scientists are understanding those futures. So one thing that really strikes me here, that there's a little bit of a disconnect in the chronology of this shrimp aquaculture. Hmm. Um, you point out that it started to expand in the 1980s, but it's only now that developmentalists are suggesting that it's the only solution. So that's a very like a 40 year ago problem and a present day problem. So basically, kind of the question is, what are the origins of shrimp cultivation and aquaculture in Southwest Bangladesh? Uh, and how and why did the shrimp boom begin? And then why and how did it become to be seen as the seen by some as the solution to the challenges of global climate change, um, especially related to global sea level rises? And I suppose then again, what you kind of alluded to it a little bit. What are the problems with this discourse? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I love this question. Um, so the the real shrimp boom started, as you said, and as I said earlier, in the 1980s, and that happened essentially as a result of structural adjustment programs. And so development agencies were looking for new sort of export commodities to invest in. Shrimp has become Bangladesh's second largest export after garments. So this was when a lot of money started to be really funneled into these shrimp export programs. And that's when shrimp really expanded rapidly in this region. There, there was some history of shrimp cultivation along with other kinds of indigenous fish varieties. And that was kind of a sort of cottage industry, I guess you'd say, where fish was cultivated during certain times of the year and intercropped with rice. And that was, you know, not something that was done commercially, but sort of people would eat that fish and they would sell some of it. Um, but that was really a different kind of production system than what we started to see in the 80s when 
the shrimp boom happened in sort of in Bangladesh, but also all across South and Southeast Asia and Latin America. So the sort of prehistory of this shrimp boom was that there was some kind of native cultivation, but also that development agencies kind of had their eyes on the potential for commercial shrimp aquaculture prior to the 80s. And so I something that I'll just talk about in just a second is that in the in the 50s and 60s, these Dutch and American engineers um, planned and built a massive network of embankments across Bangladesh's coastal zone. And in the documents that I read about these plans for embankments, I found that development agencies had been thinking about shrimp since they just even started to think about these embankments. So th there, there was sort of an eye to that as a possibility for, for a long time. The problem is that this embankment, they call them, they call these embankments polders, which means essentially an embankment that surrounds a, an island entirely and sort of cuts off tidal channels. And so there are 123 of them now across Bangladesh's coastal zone. They've essentially cut off the estuary. And as a result, these tidal wetlands have begun to sink. And the consequence of that is that it looks like sea level rise is happening really rapidly, but a lot of the sea level rise there in the region is relative sea level rise, which is often caused by the land sinking, which is different from absolute sea level rise, which is caused by the volumes of the oceans rising, which is the result of climate change. So what I'm describing here is that there are pretty rapid ecological changes happening in this region. Many of them are described as the result of climate change, and they often are the result of other things. And those other, the, the two other things that I focus on in the book are, first of all, this network of embankments, which has the, these polders, which has caused the land to sink. And the second is actually shrimp aquaculture itself. And so um, shrimp aquaculture requires the use of salt water on lands that previously were lands used for rice agriculture. And when the salt water sits on the land for an extended period of time, it causes the soil to become very salinated. And sometimes that, that salt water leaks into the underground aquifers, which means that drinking water also becomes salinated. So this salination of the water and the soil is called the result of climate change and shrimp aquaculture is used as a response to it, but shrimp is actually causing these problems that it's being proposed as an alternative to. So that's sort of a, um, a messy back and forth chronology of shrimp in this region, but I'd say in the early 2000s, when money started to come into the country more and more for addressing climate change, that's when development agencies started saying, maybe if this salination is an inevitability, then, you know, shrimp could be the solution. And so that's when this messy causality around whether shrimp was a cause or a response to the ecological changes that are being observed, that's when th this um, started being talked about as sort of a new climate change adaptation approach for Bangladesh. And so just to sort of then fully respond to the, the last part of your question, which is what are the problems with it? 
So I've said that it causes this salinity, which causes a lot of problems for drinking water. It also makes it impossible to uh, farm rice and other agricultural crops because the soil becomes um, so salty that other crops won't grow. And I think that from the perspective of the social movements who I have worked with and interviewed, the, the biggest problem is that land has been forcibly grabbed in a lot of cases for shrimp. And um, those land grabs are often quite violent. And in, in particular, in one case um, that really galvanized this social movement throughout the region, one uh, leader, Karunamoyi Sardar, who, who was sort of opposing land grabbing in her village for shrimp aquaculture in the, 1990, in the 80s and 90s, was murdered by would-be shrimp aquaculturalists. And that martyrdom has been annually commemorated in a festival that draws the whole movement together and thousands of people come from all over the region for Karunamoyi Day every year in November. And I, I think that it's this sort of interplay of the ecological impacts of shrimp and the sort of violent social impacts that is of, of most concern for for residents. Thanks. So one of the things that this last bit of your analysis really points to is um, a challenge to the popular notion of the climate refugee mm-hmm. and the climate migrant, because those, those are seen as results of climate change. But you're talking about dispossession here, that there's other factors um, that contribute to outmigration that from zones such as southwest Bangladesh mm-hmm. that are regularly understood as climate vulnerable in the context of current global warming. Could you just explain to your to our listeners, uh, your thinking here, just is there a broader problem with this conceptualization of the climate migrant? Uh, and is there a way to kind of untangle this and make a more holistic analysis, in your view? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So yeah, I mean, the additional layer of these social and economic impacts that I didn't mention about the dispossession is that shrimp requires much less labor to produce relative to rice farming. And so uh, most researchers and development agencies will say that the production of shrimp um, within a village requires about 10% of the amount of labor that rice farming requires. And a lot of residents I spoke to um, estimated it was more like 1%. So that means that um, for 100 people that are employed in rice farming, only one to 10 of them would still have jobs after a transition to shrimp. And this is a major issue in a region, especially where there's such a large population of landless farmers and sharecroppers who rely on employment like this to sustain their families. And what I've found is that the result of this labor transition in the areas that have shifted from rice to shrimp is this massive outmigration of people who are no longer able to sustain their families in these landscapes. And I found that in the areas where I was doing research, most of these people were moving to cities. And in a lot of cases, that was Kolkata because Kolkata is the largest uh, major city close to this southwestern region. And so I went to Kolkata and I interviewed several migrants from Kulna to ask them why they had come there and how they felt about this migration. And what I found is that you know, there's this really clear picture that emerges when you talk to migrants that their 
migration decisions are motivated by economic transitions and not by these ecological transitions. And what I think is, so when you talk to researchers who study climate migration and who use these terms like climate refugees, no one will say that it is clear who is a climate migrant and who is an economic migrant. Like most of these researchers will say that it's always very fuzzy. Like people move for reasons that are motivated both by ecological and by economic concerns. And therefore migrations that are motivated in part by some ecological dynamic can be called climate migrations because they're sort of happening at this nexus of ecological and economic motivations for migration. The problem that I think my research tries to unpack about this way of thinking about what a climate refugee is, is that if we say these people are climate refugees, then it makes it seem like what is motivating their migrations is inevitable because climate change is an imminent process that is happening and can only be stopped at this global scale where, you know, where we're talking about mitigating carbon emissions. On the other hand, if you identify more sort of spatially proximate factors for these migrations saying, you know, actually people are migrating because of specific decisions that are being made by development agencies, by policymakers, uh, about things like, you know, what kinds of crops to promote, what kinds of zoning decisions can be made. And that if we, if we understand those more proximate factors motivating these migrations, then we can see that they're not inevitable and that different decisions could be made that would allow people not to migrate if they don't want to. So I think so I think that, you know, the term climate uh, migration or climate refugee, for some people, it does important political work in terms of exposing the really serious and problematic demographic shifts that are happening due to climate change. And we can see in rural Bangladesh that on the other hand, it does political work that is not necessarily liberatory for vulnerable people in this region. That's uh, really fantastic to hear hear that real critique of this really popular figure in um, a lot of uh, discussions about the effects of climate change. So the way you describe how to gain this knowledge is primarily through interviews, particularly through your interactions with uh, landless peasants, uh, through the movement of Nigeria Kori. And at the same time, you draw on, for the book itself, you actually draw on a lot of other interviews as well with um, participants in scientific programs from across the globe, as well as global organizations, including but not limited to the United Nations Development Program, uh, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And obviously, as you've kind of really shown out here, uh, shown here that you're actually very critical of their perspectives. In fact, one quotation from your book is actually referred to um, the FAO's work as contradictory. I just want to kind of talk about how you manage these relationships. First, I suppose this, this could be two questions, but one with um, the landless peasants known as Nigeria Kori uh, in rural Bangladesh, and also with um, participants uh, in these kind of global development uh, narratives. Uh, what methodological opportunities um, did both sets of relationships bring? And I suppose the other question is, what ethical challenges did you face and uh, resolve in your research? Yeah, that's such a good question. So, I mean, it it was an interesting 
transition for me sort of to start doing research with development agencies because, you know, since the beginning of my research in Bangladesh, I had been working mostly in rural communities with these peasant groups. And I really enjoyed spending time with them. And my understanding of what was happening in Bangladesh was shaped by these relationships that I had with them primarily. And as I started to think about like what I could do next for this bigger project and a a book, I realized that the movement already had a pretty good idea of what was happening from their perspective. And they didn't have access to the perspectives of these development agencies that I could access. And as a, as, you know, as a white woman, and as a white woman who was coming from a, a powerful American university. And so I, I spent two years, sort of focused years of doing ethnographic research in Bangladesh. And during that time, I, I lived in Dhaka. I sort of moved back and forth between Dhaka, the, the uh, Bangladesh's capital, and these rural communities in Kulna. And it was... Yeah, it was a it was a complex experience of a lot of different kinds of relationship building. You know, when I'm in rural Bangladesh, I mostly um, wear saris and I speak Bengali. And when I was going into the headquarters of the World Bank and the FAO and the UNDP, I was wearing sort of Western uh, business clothes. And I. I was happy that it meant that I could access information that the people that, you know, the the villagers who I was working with couldn't access. I mean, it, you know, it, it would be difficult for a leader of a, of a Bangladeshi peasant movement to get into the World Bank headquarters in Dhaka. There are, you know, multiple security gates and also just to, to, to be admitted and to be, be able to participate in those conversations you know, obviously those are conversations that not are, aren't open to everyone. I did also though find that in those conversations, I often gained access to insights about how decisions were being made and what the motivations were of those practitioners that were not necessarily in line with the understandings of the social movement leaders who I, who I was sort of interviewing and working with. And that was also an interesting challenge. Who has access to what kinds of information when I suddenly had access to information that they didn't have, what would that mean for them? And what would it mean for how I would share it? There was this, there was this one case, and I wrote about this a little bit in the book where there was an NGO that was doing a project in one of the villages where the the movement was also working. And I had been interviewing both the villagers and also the NGO program officials about this project. And the villagers had submitted a right to information request formally to the NGO that, that Bangladesh has this new right to information law where basically anyone is any citizen has the right to ask for information about any government or NGO project and it, it has to be given to them. So the villagers had asked had submitted this RTI request to this NGO and um, they had been denied and they had, appealed that denial multiple times and they appealed it all the way up to the the highest RTI court 
and the you know RTI court in Dhaka said yes you have to give this information and the development agency basically didn't give it and so that they had to appeal it again and then finally when they gave it they gave just some very cursory information that was like insufficient for the villagers to understand what the plans involving this project were so when I went to talk to the, to the villagers about it I was like listen I was in their office. They gave me all the information that you're asking for. And why don't you just let me give you the information? Because I have it. And I don't think that their plans are as bad as you think that they're going to be. And their response was, the information doesn't matter to us as much as our ability to access the information. So just because you can get that information doesn't mean that we should accept it. What we need is to be able to demand and access that information ourselves. So yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from from this experience and others in the sense that I it's not it's obviously not simple to be this sort of interlocutor between um, people who have knowledge and people who want that knowledge. And I, think that a lot of my work to sort of process what that position is, is just to learn from the experience of being in, in between these two worlds. And instead of just to think of, you know, the knowledge that comes out of that participation as static, to think of it as sort of always negotiated between these unequal positions of power. Sure. Okay. So one of the things that really kind of strikes me about these development agencies, and you kind of alluded to it there, that they seem almost very colonial. Mm. And kind of your book semi-points to that kind of that characterization as well. There you you draw on history as far back as the period of the East India Company in the region. You um, emphasize a great deal of continuity in terms of developmentalist regimes from, from the EIC era through to mid 20th century and into the present there's actually a lot of continuity there whether that's been for capitalist exploitation from um, the 19th century or early capitalist exploitation to the climate change adaptation and you kind of mentioned yeah, emphasizing this continuity you even one of the one of the fascinating aspects one of the fascinating bits in your book actually is that you cite a map of a coastal region that indicates all the areas that have been taken up by development projects and actually draw direct parallels and um, between this map uh, and the maps created at the 1884 Berlin Conference, uh, which preceded the scramble for Africa. And I suppose this is me with my historian hat on, and also mm. as someone who's trained in Africanist history to begin with. Mm. Um, you don't you refer to all this con colonial continuity, but you don't actually use the word neo-colonial mm. or um, the current um, development developmentalist regime. And I wondered why not. Not as a reason that I think you should, but uh, possibly as like uh, what what I imagine you thought about this. I, I thought about this and wrestled with it for a little while. Um, is this term just too reductive, or are there other factors at play, or do you want to? Yeah, could you maybe speak to that? Yeah, that's such a good question, and it's actually one that I'm trying to grapple with more in in my work now going forward. I am very interested in the sort of continuities in power imbalances from the colonial period to the present. What is really complicated about thinking about colonialism in Bangladesh today is that Bangladesh has 
in ways that other that you know in India and other parts of the Indian subcontinent haven't been has been essentially sort of multiply colonized like after the period of partition India gained its independence Bangladesh became part of Pakistan it was then East Pakistan you know sort of political movements in Bangladesh today see that as many, many sort of, and some of these are sort of nationalist discourses, but even many scholars of Bangladesh see that as a period of sort of a secondary colonization because Bangladesh Bangladeshis didn't have the kind of political and economic rights that West Pakistanis had during that period of the sort of um, non-contiguous East Pakistan, West Pakistan Union. So Bangladeshis fought for their independence, you know, East Pakistanis fought for their independence for what became Bangladesh. And then um, after the War of Independence in 1971, Bangladesh had, you know, an elected state, but the sovereignty of that state was compromised by development actors, sort of this was like the height of the Cold War, and um, Bangladesh had written um, a, a pretty avowedly socialist constitution, and the right to self-determination of that young state was pretty aggressively attacked by um, specifically the United States, but by sort of the um, the entire sort of apparatus of both sides of the um, Cold War machine. And so uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, who was, you know, the, he's called the father of the nation of Bangladesh, and he was the first leader of the country. He was assassinated pretty quickly. And Bangladesh then had a series of increasingly sort of authoritarian states. And Today, Bangladesh is a single party state and the development agencies that invest in the country have a lot of control over um, how development aid is channeled into the country. And so the word neocolonial is perhaps apt, but complicated because it's less clear on exactly who's doing the colonizing, how that colonization is happening and what it means for the sort of post-independent elites of this young state who have sort of shaky control over the, the ability to sort of govern Bangladesh's future and development tra trajectory. And so I think that it's important to think about colonial continuities. I think that um, the words that we use to describe those continuities are very fraught. So that, that's why I don't use the word neocolonial, but I... I I would love to read something that someone else wrote about why this is neocolonial. <laughs> I'm not sure that it is, and I'm going to bow mm -hmm. to your um, superior expertise here. It's just a question that really struck me. I think this is probably, um, and listeners, regular listeners might understand my biases here as uh, someone who specializes in 19th century East Africa, or yeah. in particular, but was trained in Africanist history and yeah. focusing on the, like, the early colonial period as well. And this yeah. kind of just really this is something that is kind of interesting to me that is long continuity. But of course, yeah. there's a whole messy 20th century in there, which I've kind of over, which which needs to be accounted for as well. Yeah, exactly. So okay, so I'm going to ask one more question about the book. Um, okay. and this um is about your final chapter. 
which indicates some qualified success stories uh, in which uh, landless populations in two locales have successfully resisted shrimp aquaculture, either by preventing its implementation in the 1980s or by returning to rice agriculture since the mid 2000s. And I said qualified success stories because there are ongoing challenges, sometimes violent in nature, and you prefer to at least one violent episode during this interview. This begs the question, where do you see these kind of success stories going? Because they only refer to two areas within the one, two polders uh, within a group of 123. Are these, are these stories from these two polders replicable for other parts of the Southwest region? Or are they likely to strain under the weight of capital, capital and developmentalist attitudes leading to dispossession and shrimp agriculture? That is kind of, a, I'm asking you to speculate, which I suppose is an unfair thing to do, but if yeah. you don't mind. Yeah, it's a good question. And one that I guess has sort of a two-part answer. The first is one that, um, that I actually can't answer, but that I tried to answer while I was doing work for the book. And that is a sort of physical scientific question about the possibility of return. So, you know, after I heard from all these development agencies that, you know, farming rice was unviable in this region and that climate change was going to make it increasingly unviable, I spent a lot of time interviewing natural scientists and spending time sort of moving around the region trying to understand the truth of this claim because it was clear to me that it wasn't true that everywhere rice was unviable because there were these communities that were, you know, some communities that were returning to rice from shrimp. But what I heard from scientists was we don't really know if it is unviable and we don't know what the point of no return is. We don't have enough information to understand like at what point does the salt seep into the deep aquifers, making it impossible to pump fresh water up and, and things like that. And at what point does salt leach so deeply into the soil that the soil can't be recovered. So like, I, you know, I worked in one village where people had resisted the transition. The, this village had transitioned to shrimp. They decided to resist, to go back to rice. It took about seven years to recover the fertility of the soil, basically by not producing shrimp and um, by letting the monsoon rains leach the, the salt out of the soil and then the soil did return to its former fertility. It's not clear that that is possible everywhere. So when I would sort of take this knowledge that I was getting from these natural scientists and talk to people working for development agencies about it, and they would say, you know, well, it's not possible to, to return to rice. And I would say, well, we know that in some places it is possible. Um, like, you know, and I, and I would mention a few of these select sites that are increasingly, you know, sort of known and they would say, well, okay, it is possible, but it's not necessarily desirable. Shrimp is more desirable because it's going to bring in all of these export earnings, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, it's, it's necessary for economic growth. So these are two really different narratives, right? Is it not possible or is it not desirable? And the normative question about desirability is a question that different people have different answers to. And I think also is a relevant question to ask for, for whom is this most desirable? Because that also entails a question about who we should ask and who, you know, who should decide. 
so that's a that's a question that, like I said, I unfortunately can't answer, but that I think from a scientific perspective, it's important for us to understand the distinction between those two things. From the sort of political side of the question about um, what's happening, there are more and more villages that are mobilizing to return to rice farming and turning away from shrimp aquaculture. I wouldn't say they're the majority. I would say that they are strong and growing. I think that it's important to tell their stories even if they are not the majority because it tells us something really important about the kinds of futures that are possible in the time of climate change. And so I think that um, stories from communities that are insisting on their own viability, where people are saying that climate change is making them unviable, that those stories anywhere in the world are really important stories to tell because it, it tells us that in the context of climate change, there are not inevitable futures, but there are political struggles that are happening now in the present that shape those futures. Thanks very much, Inukri. That is incredibly important. And thank you very much for your very important research and book. Right, I just want to give you one uh, final question. What are you working on now? And uh, what can we expect to see, read or hear about from you in the, I suppose, relatively near future? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, you asked me this question about colonialism, and that really is the question that I am trying to grapple with now. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about decolonization and what decolonization means in the context of climate change, both in terms of grappling with the sort of ecological legacies of colonialism and also in terms of the kind of political inheritance that shapes the way that people are able to struggle with and respond to climate change. And I'm sort of taking a lot of inspiration from new political movements that are not directly claiming to be movements around climate justice, but whose struggles like those in Southern Bangladesh and also like um, Black Lives Matter and other kinds of sort of radical political movements that are increasingly seeing their struggles being aligned with struggles for climate justice. So I'm not sure how soon you can see work on that from me, but um, that is what I'll be thinking about for the time being. <laughs> in that case, I look forward to hearing about it whenever it's ready. That sounds incredibly interesting. Thank um, you. And there's a whole load of other questions I could have asked about the use of history in this uh, in your book, but I'll uh, let those um, readers think about those questions. Um, so basically, I just want to thank you, Professor Proprocki, for your research and for discussing it with me in this podcast. I also want to thank Sam Lee Riemann for organizing and producing it. Uh, and I'd like to thank you, the listener, for streaming and or downloading. Once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this is the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Praising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 